0: Professor Maria Yakovu is currently Professor of Prehistoric and Proto-Historic Archaeology at the Department of History and Archaeology in the University of Cyprus, and whose work focuses on Mediterranean island cultures in the Late Bronze and Iron Age, and among many things on state formation in the second and first millennia BCE. She is a prolific author, and I am very happy to welcome her to the podcast. Again, Maria, welcome.
1: Thank you, Andreas.
0: In the 19th century, and based on on our conversation, you you brought up the the history of research in Cyprus. Why did Cyprus all all of a sudden become one of the focal points for British excavation and exploitation?
1: It didn't. It didn't. That's the problem. The Brits simply continued to loot, to be busy looting. They destroyed the inception of Cypriot archaeology in many ways. It was not before the late 1920s that we can talk about important archaeological projects. So some things are (laughs) a little bit different than what we used to talk about in in the past. They came here as colonizers and they behaved abominably. It's a much more complicated issue, but thank God it's been rather clarified in recent years. And uh, the best thing is that even the British Museum and, and, and the current curator of Cypriot antiquities in the British Museum has been brave enough to publicize the naughty activities of the early British teams. And uh, that was a very important.
0: So what was a driving factor for the British to come into Cyprus and start looting all the antiquities at this time period?
1: Well... They, they, they said it in so many words themselves the moment they arrived. And I have um, repeatedly used it in many of my talks and PowerPoints. They actually write, we have an area of the classical world in our complete colonial power. So the way they approached the island was the way of conquerors, of, of colonizers. And and they behaved in this respect quite differently from what they did in Crete. In Crete, the same, sometimes the very same scholars, scholars, archaeologists, historians, um, behaved in a completely different manner because it was clear that Crete was not under their jurisdiction. So they obeyed different laws and different rules. And that's why I'm in my non-archaeology was so far ahead of Cypriot archaeology, decades, if not almost a century before Cypriot archaeology. For us, it's, uh, it's now that we are really struggling to, to create the archaeology of Cyprus and to liberate it from erroneous approaches. And it's the university that has made all the difference because there was no such thing as a school for Cypriot studies and Cypriot archaeology.
0: I read from um, one author, her name is Gail Hook, and she wrote, and I quote, this neglect led to the founding of the Cyprus Museum in Nicosia, which uh, I should say I find kind of ironic. Uh, It was maintained wholly by private British um, subscription. But even then, there was neglect, unidentified, poorly catalogued artifacts. What when would you Without say-
1: context, <laughs> just material they didn't want to sell or they didn't want to take back home. So it was not before nine, the 1930s that we have a true first antiquities law. That's very late. Only in the 1930s and, and only under the pressure of the Swedish Cyprus expedition. They didn't know what to do with those hundreds of thousands of Objects that the Swedes wanted to deliver to them to the Brits, so that was a, that was the story behind the first antiquities law.
0: You also mentioned that many erroneous understandings of the past started in this period
1: because because of what they were sending to different European and American museums as a Cypriot art. It was therefore. Um, an art historic approach based on, let's say, a couple of or many statues and bases that they were looking at, out of context, completely out of context. <laughs> so there were one art historian was was um, willing to see e- Egyptian influences, another Neo Assyrian, Persian, Phoenician. Nobody ever saw the art of Cyprus. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's an extremely distinct cultural material that today doesn't take much for one to identify. Many of the themes we consider de facto history of Cyprus are in fact quite erroneous and they can lead into dead ends.
0: Forty years ago, uh, we would have called the, the 12th century uh, the beginning of Mycenaean colonization of Cyprus, and that was principally based on pottery evidence. And I, I'm going to read a quote from one of your papers. You write, Iron Age Cyprus remained hostage to Mycenaean and Phoenician colonization narratives until scholars began to work toward a reevaluation of the interpretive framework. And the same thinking uh, holds true for Phoenician colonization but recent archaeological evidence has challenged that interpretation and reinterpreted material evidence. And you also write, the material record on its own could not defend the migration of Greek speakers to Cyprus. However, as you also know, linguistic evidence suggests otherwise. So how do we reconcile the two? Is this still a matter of debate uh, to the extent of um, Mycenaean immigration and where is this rooted this idea of basing it on uh, an art perspective I think as you alluded to at the start of our conversation
1: There was let's start from the beginning with the history of research you you're very well aware that uh, Cyprus was under Ottoman rule up to 1887 and that uh, it was then given over to Great Britain that administered the island for a number of years, turned it into a British colony of the crown, and then Cyprus becomes a so-called independent country in 1960. So we have here a problem that has to do with um, colonization. There are different ways to approach the issue of Mycenaeans. People used it, I say people not to use the term scholars or diplomats or uh, British uh, colonial uh, administrators, people used this story either to attack Cyprus as a non-Greek island or in order to, to turn Cyprus in, into an old greek island since antiquity. None of this has to do with with archaeology. It has nothing to do with archaeological data. The island had almost nothing that you could call an archaeological project until quite recently. It was not before the 1920s that we can talk about formal, well-organized, scientific archaeological projects that can give us secure data that need to be interpreted and also that should continue to be reinterpreted based on new data that come out year after year. There is no such thing in archeology span as a a set history. If I teach every year the same course and I use the same data, well, they should should really get rid of me because (laughs) because our data change very fast, on an annual basis. This is one of the first things we need to remember. So many issues that relate to the history of ancient Cyprus are today quite erroneous, despite the fact that they have not yet been removed from various textbooks or even school books. We have to stop using ethnic identities like Mycenaean or Phoenician or Canaanite because they are extremely hard to identify. What we need to pay attention to is to the tangible culture of Cyprus from early prehistory to this day. I'm sure you realize from reading my my work that I am an advocate of the long durée, long-term observations. We need to know our history of the island throughout, not go straight into the 12th century or to the Iron Age or to any specific period of time, because this could be quite misleading. So the so-called Mycenaeans, what do we mean by that? We are trying to refer to a group of people that have been identified with the earliest group that speaks and writes the Greek language. How do we know this? We have found their tablets, their economic accounts, from their administrative buildings called palaces, megara, in Knossos, Pylos, primarily, more recently in Thebes. And we know that with this system that is called Linear B and has been Deciphered in the 1950s. They were the the first Greek speakers based on inscriptions, based on epigraphy. Do you realize that this linear system disappeared altogether in the 12th century? Here we are going back to the 12th century. Why did it disappear? Because it was a scribal system exclusively used by a royal authority that was no longer in existence. They had vanished altogether. So people were not really literate. They were using that linear B system in order to record their economic transactions for the palaces. None of these scribes continue to be employed by anybody. So the mainland of Greece becomes once again Illiterate, shall we say. In, in fact, it becomes an area that is not using a scribal tool. But shortly afterwards, this same language that the Mycenaeans were speaking, and we see this from the inscriptions, appear in Cyprus. And they're using the same words, but not the same scribal system they are now taking over a local scribal system that was the island's own, Cyprominoan, and they are using it to apply their own Greek language. So this is the most important issue and the fact that we cannot um, hide or bury because it was that language that was transferred to Cyprus. And gradually, very gradually, that ancient Greek dialect became the main language of the island. It took centuries. Why? Because at the very same time that these people had come into the island, some others had also entered the island since it was a good place to be in the 12th century from an economic point of view because it had not suffered a major total economic crisis. Some places did disappear, but most of the island had, an, had a flourishing economy during the time of the Mediterranean crisis. And one of the main reasons that it continued to have a flourishing economy was because it did not have a centralized, extremely bureaucratic system. It was already divided into polities. So some of the polities managed to survive and remain extremely active commercially, and others simply disappeared. So people found work at Cyprus, as they continue to do today during an economic uh, economically stressful periods, we see people from Greece or from the opposite coast of Lebanon coming into Cyprus. They continue to do so today. So in my view, it is quite clear that Canaanites that had also suffered major disasters at the end of the 13th, early 12th century were also transferred to Cyprus and especially the eastern coast and Enkomi because they were already in, very close commercial associations with Cyprus and especially with Encomy, the the metropolis of the late Bronze Age of the island. So it's not one linguistic group that comes into the island in the 12th century. It is certainly two. It's very hard to avoid this. So the stories about Mycenaeans colonizing are erroneous stories because they did not colonize they came looking for jobs they came as expert masters of various and different types of um, uh, craftsmanship and that's why all of a sudden in cyprus in the 12th century and not before we start having exceptional pieces of art in ivory in metalworking, in um Um, monumental uh, buildings made of uh, ashlar blocks, well-carved stones that didn't exist before. All these people had become jobless because these main royal uh, administrative centers had disappeared. It was the end of the Mycenaean palatial culture, but it was also the end of the Hittite Empire, and the end also of the new palace period in Egypt. So you have a lot of experts all around the Mediterranean looking to relocate. And one of the places where they relocated was the island of Cyprus. And because we are an island, and that's why I insist that Cyprus has to be studied as an island, because until recently it was being studied as if it was part of an empire or a section of a greater Uh, continental power. That doesn't work. An island has this curious self-protection because it's surrounded by the sea. Empires are usually based on continents, and continental powers rarely have their own uh, men of war. They usually have to rely to someone like the Phoenicians or the Cypriots for, for their commercial but also their military affairs at sea. So, this so-called island isolation gave Cyprus the, the, the freedom to make choices, economic choices and political choices, that places like the city-states of Lebanon, that we usually call Phoenician, did not have. They were constantly invaded by continental powers, whether these were the new Assyrians or later the Persians, but not Cyprus. Most of the time, Cyprus got away with this. So we are not talking about colonization. We are talking about the infiltration from surrounding lands, from the Aegean, from the West and from the East. And, we ca- and in order to understand this, we have to continue looking into our island data, our evidence, into the first millennium. Not only because this will show clearly that the island did not just speak one language. People were using three different languages to the very end of the fourth century, which is the first time that we can really talk about an invader that will take over the island and abolish its indigenous political system. Yes. Ptolemy, right. Yes, yes. It, that, that was the, the first time that Cyprus was forced to abandon its true political independence and the way with which it behaved in order to be affluent and to be able to have at least 10 or 7 independent city-states that were extremely active in the Mediterranean for more than a millennium. All this starts in the 12th century. And then we have to follow it step by step into various different political and economic episodes. The early Iron Age with the metric, the cake, a period of amazing affluence for the island, when we really have all the the good evidence about the different city-states and the different scribal systems they use, and then the classical period, which will bring us to the very end of Cypriot independence, when Ptolemy will abolish, in fact, execute just about all the the royal dynasties.
0: You do raise a number of questions. Now, Nicholas Coldstream, he refers to these migrants as opportunists, perhaps even economic refugees, which sounds very apt. Um, now, you note that the substitution of the term colonization with the term migration is not necessarily the ideal one, but it helps. What word would come to mind when you're describing these people?
1: Yes, I fully agreed with him that we're talking about opportunities. It was a period of entrepreneurialism. It was very easy for new people to to... to make a successful new beginning on the island. But there's something very important that we need to understand. They were not just going anywhere on the island. If you want to study Cyprus and understand its antiquity, the first thing one has to realize from the moment we see the Neolithic period and and people established on the island, we have to understand its regional cultures. There is no such thing as an island that behaves in a homogeneous manner from one end to the other. Or, if we take Encomi and study it as an important late Cypriot metropolis, we should not think that we have understood the the rest of the island. So... Regional developments are extremely important. These newcomers did not just move into all the areas of the island. We know for sure, because we have the, the inscriptional data, that they, that they arrived in, in, in ancient Paphos. That's where we have the earliest uh, use of their language after having adopted the local Cypriot script. But if we go on the opposite end, towards Encomy, we will realize that it was much later that the Greek script appeared there, that the Greek language appeared there. So it's, it's quite evident that in the East, we have more, more of the Canaanites living. And how many centuries later do we need to move in order to establish that these newcomers whom we usually call Phoenicians from the East, we are still calling the island by the same name that it was known throughout the Mediterranean in the Bronze Age. It was known as Alashia. But the only linguistic group that had kept that name were the Phoenicians. How do we know this? From the recently discovered archive, economic archive, in the palace of Italia. And that's why I'm saying there is no such thing as specializing in the 12th or the <laughs> 11th century. You need to move all the way to the end of the 4th, beginning of the 3rd, to incorporate the evidence provided by the new finds from Italia. These fantastic new projects with at least 700 inscriptions written in the Phoenician as we call it alphabet that reveals that the people writing in the Phoenician alphabet, the people living on the island who are already um, rulers of the city-state of Kidion and had now invaded Italy, knew of the island by its prehistoric late Bronze Age name, Alashia. Not the Greeks, only Phoenician speakers. So it it doesn't leave us with much of any other choice. For them to keep using that name for the island, it means that their forefathers had been established that early in Cyprus.
0: What's the need for these migrants to start recording in Greek? Because,
1: Because they had arrived in a literate island. Listen, I'm sure this, this this has also been made quite clear in, in the work of Philippa, who is a, a wonderful scholar. Um, when, when a place acquires and makes use of a scribal tool, it means it has reached the climax of its development, economic, political development. So the island of Cyprus, and this is what was missing from the earlier interpretations, The island was not viewed, especially in in the years of the British colony, I will refer in a while to to the introduction of Sir George Hill, it was not viewed as one of the major economic and political powers of the Mediterranean. But we know that even the pharaoh of Egypt addresses the head of the Cypriot um, community by as an equal, calls him my brother. So based on this, the lingua franca, the diplomatic lingua of the late Bronze Age, Cyprus was on a par with the major superpowers, the Hittites and the, and the Egyptians. At the same time, the pharaoh of Egypt refers to the rich king of, uh, of Ugarit as my son, because considers him, Lower than him, maybe even a subject, because being on the continent, continent that the coastal polities of uh, today's Lebanon were always under the threat of the superpowers. On the one hand, they had the Hittites pressing up upon them; on the other, the Egyptians, and they clashed over the Orontes River uh, at the end of the 13th century. So, so it is very important to realize that by By calling the Mycenaeans or the Phoenicians or anybody a colonizer, the problem is that it means that you are negating the true identity of the island as an economic superpower of the Bronze Age and the Iron Age.
0: And we're ignoring its agency and we're we're treating it as of a passive reception. Right. Okay.
1: And and, and what did Sir George Hill write in a book that used to circulate for at least, I don't know, maybe almost 60, 70 years um, and was considered the classic history of Cyprus? What did he write in, in his introduction of the first volume? Cyprus has no history of its own. It acquires history only when it's invaded or colonized. This is what has created... All the major trauma and drama, <laughs> and has re- and, and has produced endless pieces of of completely erroneous approaches to the island. The island was a true superpower because of the way it had used, especially its mineral resources, copper, and because it had absolutely no other way to survive. The Cypriots knew long before anybody, Greek or Canaanite, had arrived on the island, that they had only one way to develop complexity, political and social complexity. They were not going to achieve this the way the Minoans, the Cretans, did. What did the Cretans do? They explored their their farming abilities. They could sell olive oil. They could sell... Agricultural products, as they continue to do today. Have you ever have you ever seen the, the, the huge boats leaving the Isle, the, the, the harbor of Heraklion on day after day after day, moving towards Europe or the rest of uh, the Aegean? They continue to to have one of the highest per capita incomes of Greece because they're selling products of their land. Cyprus has no such chance, never did. It was always a semi-arid island. It it has completely different um, agricultural environments. Some of them are are completely uh, deficient for any kind of product. It was impossible for Cyprus to promise that it could send agricultural products year after year in order to develop a polity. A city-state, no city-state on the island, could have flourished based on regular export of agricultural products. That was always secondary. Having understood this very early, now we know that they had already attempted to join the economic networks in the third millennium BC. This is today new but very well well studied facts that during the second half of the third millennium, they managed to join the so called Anatol- Anatolian metal trade network that goes all the way to Cilicia and even Asia Minor and the Black Sea. And they did so from um, a port of call on the north coast, Basilia. But this um, first attempt did not last long because that network collapsed. It collapsed a thousand years before the twelfth century. And I'm pointing this out because we need to understand that both in th- in two thousand two hundred and again a thousand years later in the twelfth century, Cyprus suffered partially because it because the Mediterranean wide economic network had trouble. What does this mean? Cyprus will always have trouble when the bigger network in which it is involved disintegrates.
0: Right, and if Cyprus is exporting copper and the outer network falters, who do they have copper to distribute to?
1: Exactly. Immediately, they take a break, and what do they do in the 12th century the moment they see that, on the one hand, they are losing a major partner, let's say the pharaoh of Egypt or the Mycenaean kings. But, on the other hand, they have been liberated because mineral resources were not allowed to be Exchanged with anybody other than heads of states to the end of the Late Bronze Age. Now, what, what do we really mean when we say, oh, this is the end of the Late Bronze Age in the Mediterranean and we're coming into the Iron Age, the early Iron Age? Liberation. This is a major positive period. It's a wonderful period. It's a period in which entrepreneurs will, will thrive. They don't need to exchange. Lots of letters calling each other either brother or, or, or son. They're just commercial partners. And that's why we have minimal scribal evidence, m- minimal number of inscriptions during this period that everybody considers a period of illiteracy. Yes, we don't have enough uh, inscriptional material anywhere. And in case in the case of the Greek world, they've lost their scribal tool altogether because they don't need it. But they will create a new one when they, they do need it. So to go back to your question, when Greeks and Canaanites come into the island for and they, and, they, and they get established, they realize that they need to make use of a scribal system. The Greeks have no scribal system, so they adopt the local one. But the Canaanites are already literate, And their alphabet was never lost. So you have two different scribal systems working side by side on the island. And they become more visible when the city-states will become more powerful and territorial. And for this to happen, we need a new superpower. We need the new Assyrians to come all the way from the Mesopotamia to the shores of Lebanon and demand to create a common commercial network. And that new network will be a wonderful moment for the Cypriot city-states because it will will open the route for them, the venues, to reach all the way to the Mesopotamian city-states. And that's why we see all these Cypriot statues, huge numbers of Cypriot statues, transported or copied from from the shores of Lebanon all the way into the depths of Asia Minor and, and coming almost to the Mesopotamian area. Every year they send me hundreds of pictures of pottery and statues that are either copies or imports from Cyprus. And everybody wants to copy them. So do you realize what this means? Instead of calling Cyprus, oh, from an art historic point of view, uh, oh, this looks a little bit like Phoenician and the other looks a little bit Egyptian. Instead, everybody is importing or copying Cypriot material in the Near East.
0: You've uh, referred to the Iron Age as a close reenactment of its late Bronze Age political economic tradition. Mm-hmm. What characterizes the Iron Age and what distinguishes it from the Bronze what ways do we also have evidence of continuity between these two periods?
1: I have often been terribly misunderstood because of this code that you have used. Um, <laughs> I strongly believe in studying Cyprus from the beginning to today without isolating myself or making myself a so-called specialist of one little period. Um, I call those... Very dangerous period boxes.
0: (laughs) You're pigeonholing yourself when you're focusing on periods and not really seeing the whole picture for cycles.
1: Those are very dangerous artificial boundaries that destroy research. So what I'm trying to say is that the same same strengths and the same um, weaknesses that were present on the island in the Bronze Age we are also present, strengths and weaknesses, in the Iron Age. The continuity is based especially on the fact that no matter how we see things, there is no way that we can see a central state in the late Bronze Age. There is there's no true central state the way we call um, Egypt the central state or the... The Hittites, a central state. Cyprus was not a central state. It was an island divided already into different polities with different regional economic and political histories. But they certainly had a primus inter pares, someone that represented them so that the pharaoh could say, oh, my brother someone that, that could really stand up and say, I am representing all of you, and that's how we can sell our copper, and that's how we can all become extremely rich. So, so we need to be careful when we consider al a, a formal s- central state. There is no such evidence. There is neither evidence in, in the realm of a secular building that we can call a palace, There is no archive anywhere on any one of the monumental buildings that we have excavated in the Low Bronze Age. So if you have no archive, if you have no um, cylinder seals being used for sealing economy, if you cannot have iconography that presents this so-called central state and its leader, it's very hard to talk about Alessia as a formal central state. If it had been a formal central state, we would have had a major and absolute crisis in the 12th century, and yes, it would have been a break with the past. But we don't have that. Instead, the most important evidence that shows that this economic system did not go down the drain, not, not at all, is that they continued using the script. Mm-hmm. How can you go on using a script that is made specifically on the island by its pre Greek, its prehistoric society, in the name of its economy, in the name of its uh, sacred handling of business? And not only does it, does it go unscathed into the Iron Age, it's being picked up by a new linguistic community to represent them, to represent their new language and their establishment on the island. This is the importance of the Opheltas inscription. It's not a case of ethnic priorities. It is a case of of seeing the most significant continuity between what we call the end of the Bronze Age and the inception of the early Iron Age. This is what makes Opheltas such an important inscription because it is now confirmed, and I'm sure you've seen it with Philippas also, that it is written in the Cyprominoan. It, it, they're using the Cyprominoan to write this, this Greek arcado Greek name Opeletau. So we don't have a world that has disappeared, and then a new world that will come into being in the Iron Age. Those that continue to propagate this idea have a certain little problem. They want Cyprus to continue to be, you know, this passive island that expects foreigners to come as colonizers, as, as, as superior creatures, the same way that the British came at the end of the 19th century and provide culture, a linguistic system, um, an economic system, a political system to the island. But the evidence goes against this. Because we we have complexity at the end of the Bronze Age. We have complexity in the early Iron Age. I'm talking about complex societies, right?
0: Right, right. These col- these migrants. I almost used the word colonists. <laughs> these migrants, how were they able to insert themselves into this established social order when, as you said, a complex system already existed?
1: We don't know. This is the this is the truth. We can have we can have ideas. We can make suggestions. This is there are questions that are not ready to be answered and may never be answered. An archeologist has to be ready for this. There is no such thing as archeology span providing us answers for all our questions at any point in time, no matter how well we will excavate, no matter how many new data we will provide. We have to be ready to admit that some things Will continue to receive as an answer. We don't know. We do not have enough evidence because we don't see them. We see the de- we see developments in various fields, and 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 we try to interpret whether these were done exclusively by a local um, by local craftsmen or maybe these local craftsmen were now helped by others that had come from more developed systems. And it looks that we we, we have much of this evidence, especially especially in, in, in ancient Baphos, where I work. All of a sudden, ancient Baphos that was already inhabited at the beginning of the late Bronze Age, but was not much of a, an important place. We, we don't have rich tombs at the beginning of the Late Bronze Age. We don't have a lot of commercial activity, far from it. So it's not like Enkomi. It's not like de Ke. It's a, it is a harbour city, but with not much to, to talk about during the early centuries of the Late Bronze Age. And then all of a sudden, what do they do? At the end of the 13th, at the beginning of the 12th, at that, at that, at that intersection... When the rest of the Mediterranean goes into a major crisis, what do they do in Paphos? They build the one and only mega monument of the island. A a huge temenos with stones that they did not know how to cut in the past. So who taught them? Who were these engineers? Who were these people that managed to bring into uh, existence such a major sanctuary, uh, the only one that comes close to it is of the same date and is at Kidion. Again, only two sides acquire these sacred uh, Temenoi sanctuaries, and there is no precedent, but there is also no continuity in this architectural approach. It's unique. What, what, what do they say in these two places? What, where, what are they trying to tell us when we see this coming into being, founded? We are a city-state, and we can handle this. This is the beginning of the 12th century, the beginning of the major crisis. And Kition and Paphos say to everybody, there's no other way to explain this, we are, a formal city state, and we are in charge of a major resource area. We are a harbor town and we can continue to be economically extremely successful. Neither was a major power before the construction of these sacred sanctuaries, of this sacred uh, loci. They were secondary.
0: And now I do think I understand one of your quotes. It does not have to have suffered their crisis, not undergone their dark ages.
1: Exactly.
0: When we think of, um, you mentioned these settlements, uh, you call them city kingdoms. And although Britain sources never actually call them kingdoms.
1: Exactly. um, (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you.
0: (laughs) Well, I do what I can. Yeah, so... I mean, why? What would calling them kingdoms uh, first off impl- erroneously imply? Um, and what do you think is a more apt characterization? A polis, a microstate? I, I, I,
1: we have. I have devoted a, at least one very nice conference on this issue and have since been calling them polis, city-states, because that's what they were. But l- let's go back to the history of research. How? How right. did <laughs> the term city kingdom yeah. come into being? How? Because the moment they interpreted the first, the first Phoenician bilingual inscription, and then the moment they interpreted, deciphered the first um, Cyprosyllabic inscription, they came across the very same word that is responsible for this term: pasilevos, king, pasilevs the Greek term for king, was written in the, in the Cypriot syllabary, and also in the Phoenician language, MLK, and translated in the, in, the, in the bilingual inscription as basilev's king. So, because our earliest inscriptions, once they De- deciphered, defined the title of the ruler, whether the ruler was the ruler of Kidion and was an MLK, if they refer to him in Greek, they refer to him as Basileus. If they refer to him in the Phoenician language, he was an MLK. MLK. Mm -hmm. So, ever since that day, the state, the city-state of which the ruler was in charge (laughs) has been called city-kingdom, which is wrong because we have the formal title of the leader, the formal title of who runs the police, of who runs the city state. It doesn't tell us anything about the constitution or the type of institution that this territorial state has. This is something we need to find. This is something on which we are now investing almost all our major field projects, the field project of the French team in Kition, the field project of the Ecole Française in Amathus, our field project in Palebafos, a field project in Marion. We are trying to gather data without saying that my data w- will also be, for instance, the same in another city-state. This data will have to be analyzed so that we can start, just about start, to realise what the institution of a city-state in Cyprus looked like. On what was it based? What was the, the, the reality behind its political economy? How did it operate? We have very little evidence on this major issue we have very little evidence as to how these institutions were working, either in the late Bronze Age or in the Iron Age. We have very few data on which we can uh, rely. But we, we we are trying.
0: If only we had Aristotle's *Kyprian Politia*.
1: Thank you. That's it. Someone knew more than us, but we have something very important. The one sentence that has survived from Aristotle's Kyprian politia. We have that wonderful sentence, which is then repeated repeated by uh, Isocrates and Theocritus, um, and, and it's a wonderful sentence because it was a great surprise for Aristotle when he realized that in Cyprus the term vasilevs Vasilevose, is used exclusively for the head of the state. While the term anactes, anase, is used exclusively for the family, the wife, the sons, the brothers. Why is this so important? I've written extensively of this. Because in the original political system of the Mycenaeans, when the Mycenaean palaces were thriving in Mycenae, Pilos, in Pylos, in Thebes, Tyrus, the head of state in the linear B tablets was a, had, had one term by which he was recognized. One agast, anax, anax, only. Who was the Basileus in the Mycenaean system of the, of the palaces? The very lowest of the low. He was just you know, representing small communities of craftsmen. He was really responsible for receiving things like um, copper ingots and then turning them into swords, shields, wheels for war chariots, and delivering them to his superiors. So we have this Basileus, who is not much of anything, but he is directly related with copper resources. Isn't that funny? Because the next step is the, are the Homeric epics, the, 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 the rhapsodies. If we read the rhapsodies, Iliad, the Iliad, and the Odyssey, what do we see? The two terms, basileus and Wanax, anax and basilias, are used as if one is the equal of the other. That the head of the Mycenaean state and the lowest of the, local administrators, have become the same. Even today, in our modern Greek, we say anaktas and vasilias as if they are directly interchangeable. And they are. But not in ancient Cyprus. And this is what surprised Aristotle. And this is why, of all the Cypriot Polydeia, everybody kept repeating and rescued this one sentence. Only in Cyprus, did the Basileus, the king, received the, the head of the state? Only Basileus. Wanagas was only his brother or his son or his wife and, and daughters. So what happened in Cyprus? This is one of the few little things that we can <laughs> touch upon to talk about these Greek-speaking migrants. When they came into the island, They came with a basileus. They came with someone who was already in charge of these small groups, who was already recognized as their leader, as their head. He, He knew of copper. He was already a craftsman. So we have to pay attention to these little details. Now and then they can give us a lot of information to piece together these very dark areas of our
0: history. Why didn't a regional power in this time simply invade these, these um, policies and control the copper trade uh, at this time period? I know that in, um, when Assyria rises to power, there, it seems to be an alignment of mutual interests, but not a conquering phase.
1: Islands. It is much cheaper for a superpower that lives in the Mesopotamian region and has no uh, ships of its own. It is much cheaper to negotiate an alliance, especially if if the polities of Cyprus are dying to have this economic alliance, than to invade. Because if you invade, you also have to station your army, your representatives. it's It's a major investment. Why didn't they invade in the in the late Bronze Age? Why did the the pharaoh did not send his armies from Egypt? Because it was much cheaper to be in an economic um, liaison of exchanges than to have to to run another country. Invasions are not ideal for economic success, especially when you have to deal with an island offshore. It's much easier and empires never last forever. And um, it's fascinating to, to, to properly read the Stila of Sargon I and to understand how he describes how Sargon I of Assyria in 707 BC describes this liaison initiated with the rulers of Cyprus. To begin with, this is the one and only Neo-Assyrian stele that has ever been found beyond the continent. It was shipped to the island. It was taken somewhere. It was found on the shores of Kittion of Larnaga. Uh, the original is now, of course, in Germany, in the Berlin Museum, but the copy is in the Larnaca Museum. So what does Sargon I tell us in the one and only... Uh, Cuneiform inscription, royal cuneiform inscription, on this beautiful stila. He tells us that seven seven kings, and he uses the same term by which he is recognized: seven sharu king. He is also a sharu of Assyria, the same title that he gives to himself. He gives to seven sharu kings in Cyprus. So this is the most important inscription that tells us that now the island is no longer pretending to be a unified central state. It is probably recognized as an island where there are at least seven, maybe, more or less, different city-states, each with its own leader. This is extremely important. And the island is no longer recognized by the name of Alashia, gone. And that name is not known to the Assyrians or to anybody after that, except the Phoenicians. He calls the island Yaatnana. There have been many attempts to understand the etymology of these words. Most of them try to say that The the Assyrian ruler recognizes that the island belongs to the Munans, to Greek speakers, for instance, but that is really secondary at this time. The important thing is that he tells us that these seven sharu went up to him because of fear since he had arrived on the shores of Lebanon and asked to be incorporated into his empire. He never says I have gone over to invade them or to conquer them. He he accepts their offer and decides on a tribute that they will have to pay. Well, isn't it funny that by 707 BC, and especially in the course of the 7th century, soon after, the (laughs) island becomes filthy rich. We have the development of huge sculpture, We have the development of uh, extremely strong territorial states. We see the sanctuaries. We see exports from the island all over the Near East. We see the inscriptions growing, and most of them are inscriptions issued by kings, by leaders. And before the end of the 6th century, all these different Cypriot leaders are so independent and so rich that they introduce numismatic economy it's one of the earliest introductions of numismatic economy in the mediterranean by the second half of the 6th century cyprus goes into numismatic economy and at least seven different places on the island are so affluent that they are importing silver to strike these coins. And each coin represents the established authority of a different city-state with, with iconography and uh, inscriptions that are not Phoenician, that are not cuneiform, but are Greek syllabic.
0: How would we characterize the relations between the the policies in Cyprus? Now, uh, were they in states of conflict, constantly bickering? Yes,
1: constantly. That's why, and I've said this many times, and I have analyzed it many times, if you are honest with what you do in Cyprus, ancient Cyprus, you will never say, I know the exact number of the Mm -hmm. policies at any one point of time. They are constantly fighting each other. But we we can identify certain key periods. There is no doubt that in the course of the early Iron Age, the island experiences extreme fragmentation. Extreme fragmentation. It means that both inland territories and coastal areas are all attempting to be in charge, to be primary centers. This cannot work. It cannot work because if you are a harbour town in Cyprus, it means that you are receiving resources from the hinterland that you will export. If the hinterland says, I am the primary centre, but you have no access to a harbour, what are you going to do with your your resources? You cannot eat your, your copper. And even if you have a lot of agricultural products, well, you cannot remain in power by simply devouring your own production. You need to export.
0: And that's so, what happened with Tamasos.
1: Exactly. Not only with Tamasos in the end also with the We see a gradual, very gradual development that will be con- uh, th- th- that will be settled in the course of the archaic period due to to the emphasis paid by the, the neo ansyrian Syrian um, liaison because they have to pay tribute and if they're going to pay tribute they have to have a very strong political economy so that speeds up the territory realization and stops the fragmentation this doesn't mean that Tamasos will disappear from the map it is important to realize that whoever is now in charge of the area of Tamasos and of course it's not hard to recognize is being in charge otherwise Salamis would have had absolutely no access to copper, you you have to realize that Tamasos did not lose its geographical identity. It continues to be referred in the inscriptions as Tamasos. We don't have inscriptions by a royal authority. We don't have coins that were struck by a Tamasian king, but Tamasos continues to have a distinct geographical identity. It's amazing. And the same will happen with Italian. Italian will be conquered eventually by Kideon, because, as I will continue to insist, for as long as Kideon and Italian belong to the same territory, to the same region, it's an either or situation. Either the one or the other will be the primary center of the city state. At first, at the late Bronze Age, we see Cydion. In the 12th century, we see Cydion being extremely prominent. But soon after, by the end of the Geometric Period, it's obvious that we have a superpower in Italian. And that extremely important site becomes the center of a city-state with early coinage, with a huge number of uh, important inscriptions, amongst them the earliest and longest cypro syllabic inscription on the bronze tablet, now in the Louvre, that describes the conflict with Kiteon. So we have there one of the most beautiful pieces of Cypriot history, very nicely um, confirmed, that the kings of Kiteon, those that are attempting to to take over the region, the region's economy, are attacking Italians. It's a, it's a story that it's told in black and white. Okay. And indeed, they managed to take over Italian. And from then on, they run the economy of the district. What, what are we saying by this economy? The Mathiatis mines. Italian is practically sitting on one of the richest copper deposits of the island, the so-called Mathiatis area, just next door to the ancient site. So now Kidion is in charge of that. And if we want to go all the way back to the late Bronze Age, before Kidion, why is Halas-Ultan Decay as a harbour town full of deposits of copper slag? Where does this copper come from to become ingots and to be exported from halas Decay? It's the same region. It's the region of Mathiatis. So we need to pay attention to political economies, primary resources, and to put together the areas where the resource comes from, especially the mineral resources, and see which harbor will be responsible for its export. In the end, between this vendetta between hinterland polities and coastal polities will come to, to, to an end in favor of the coastal polities. Cyprus is an island based on the export of commodities to this day. Cyprus without harbors is, is a poor Cyprus.
0: Maria, I want to honor your time here. And I do want to talk about the Balebafos project.
1: Before we move on to Balébaphos, I want to insist on the study of the islands. And that's why I am, I, paying a great attention to the four big islands of the Mediterranean. You will understand Cyprus much better if you pay attention to the archaeology and history of Crete, Sicily, and Sardinia. They are our four island continents. They are these wonderful big islands that have almost nothing in common <laughs> because they are so exceptionally independent in the choices they can make. Throughout the second millennium, neither Sicily nor Sardinia felt any need to develop complexity. We cannot associate them them with true urbanism or with city-states, but they had amazing cultures, especially in the case of Sardinia, monumental, megalithic cultures, or the Nuragis. In Crete, on the other hand, we see an island a little bit smaller than Cyprus, an island that has absolutely no significant mineral or metallic resources, becoming the one and only island on our planet that has ever developed a palatial system. This is against (laughs) what we learn. There's no such thing as a little island, little island, smaller than Cyprus, that not only... Develops its own, and the earliest for the Mediterranean, scribal system, Linear A. In, in fact, two systems: first, an early hieroglyphic system, then also the Linear A, with which to to, to handle its economy. It develops um, formal archives within formal palatial centers, based uh, th- th- they are full of rooms, labyrinths. Just like the palaces in in Mari, in the Mesopotamian region. It doesn't make sense. It really doesn't make sense. But most of the time, people think that it is Cyprus that doesn't make sense because it is so close to the continent, and yet it took Cyprus much longer to develop complexity and urbanization. Why? Because it was much harder to base complexity and urbanization on a heavy industry, and especially when your populations are limited. Limited because how much food can you produce on the island? So we need to keep in mind the strengths and the limitations per island, and most of all, to appreciate their independent um, developments. Why does Cyprus develops its own scribal system in the middle of the second millennium when it is surrounded by huge superpowers that are using the cuneiform. Philippa has responded to this. It's an identity issue. Instead of uh, adopting the cuneiform, the cuneiform was used for hundreds of languages, thousands of dialects but it was not good enough for the Cypriots. So it was the Cypriots that that stopped the development of the cuneiform in the Mediterranean. Two islands, Cyprus and Crete, each developed its own scribal system against whatever was going on either in Egypt or in the the Mesopotamian region. Even the Pharaoh was using the cuneiform to, to communicate with the rest of the world, not the Cypriots. The Cypriots forced everybody to use interpreters to read their letters.
0: (laughs) Amazing, (laughs) amazing. So let's, before we sign off here, let's talk about the Palais Urban Landscape Project. What's your role in this right now and how do field projects work today in collecting data?
1: Let me start from the beginning. I went to Balebafos because even as a student, I had some major research questions in my mind. This and, and my, my efforts to work on, on the transition from the Bronze Age to the Iron Age and to um, clarify some, some of the misunderstandings made me realize that Paleopathos was special. It was special because at the end of the 4th century, there was no longer a major urban center on the site. Why? Because it had moved to Neopathos. What does this tell us? What does this te- told me that with the right project which I called landscape analysis a digital project we could have um, isolated spots on the area of Palebaphos that would take us back to the age of the city state. You see even if you go to Palebaphos today all you will see will be the, the famous sanctuary. So this famous sanctuary had kind of taken over the the realities and the history of the ancient city state of Paphos. We're talking about the original Paphos. The name Paphos is one of the ten names listed by Esarhaddon, who followed Sargon the in the early seventh century, listed under his own king in six. 79 BC, So it's one of the powerful city-states of the island for more than a thousand years. At the end of the 4th century, with the move of the Ptolemies to Neapathus, they, they must have abandoned an urban center that was left the way it was at the end of the city-state's uh, independent existence. I didn't expect to be as successful <laughs> as we were in the end. So in 2002-2003, first I invested together with m- many wonderful colleagues in a in an early project called the Palepaphos Digital Atlas. We collected with a GIS system and the related database this huge amount of dispersed information over five square kilometers around the sanctuary that mostly had to do with tombs and um, analyzed it spatially and chronologically. Soon after that, we ran a geophysical survey project. Taking data from the two together, I saw some (laughs) very peculiar um, things happening. And I realized that uh, some of the things we considered facts were not facts. They had been fabricated by earlier scholars who did not work enough in the field, but uh, as was quite regular in in those days, in the 50s, for instance, they relied on general historic concepts about city-states, about city walls, and all of that. I realized that there was a major misunderstanding about as an urban center of which we know many names of its kings because we have a fantastic number of royal inscriptions. But in the landscape, we see nothing, close to nothing. There are areas where tombs were excavated. There's a little incomplete monument in the area called Marcello, another little incomplete monument in another terrace called Haji Abdullah. But other than that, we don't see the city-state. We don't see the the urban center of these kings. With uh, this in mind, I developed in the project we called, for short, PALP, Palepaphos Urban Landscape Project. It was initiated, initiated in 2006, and I chose specific little sectors that were obviously extremely important in the early days of the city-state because of the evidence that we had collected through the GIS system. And I ran some very short uh, and targeted excavation projects. One in Marcello, another in Mandisa, a third in Arcalon, a fourth in Hajiabtullah. Different sectors, of the ancient city that were invisible. Well, today they are not invisible. Today I am stuck <laughs> with two huge monuments that, that were only less than a kilometer away to the east of the sanctuary and were completely unknown. The one is the extensive Working complex of the palace of the Cyproclassical dynasty on the terrace of Hajatullah, where we ha- were excavating one work- workshop unit after the other. The other is an even more complex and complicated monument on Laona that nobody had identified before as a true tumulus, an anthropogenic mound. Because we don't have mounds in Cyprus, we're not used to to having tumuli mounds as burial structures, burial monuments.
0: Can you explain what a what a tumulus is for listeners? A
1: a, man, a huge man-made mound, which will which hides inside it a burial monument, like the mound where Philip was buried, buried in Macedonia. Mounds are regular. Uh, burial monuments, especially in Macedonia. Just to talk about an area that will be, with which most listeners will be familiar. There are mounds all over the world, but especially in the Mediterranean, all mounds are known to be uh, burial monuments. They hide the tomb and they're called monuments, mnimi, eh, because they want to, to create a a huge man-made hill in the landscape that will be visible forever. Forever. Despite the fact that they will never leave us an inscription as to whom they buried there, the monument will always be there because of the way they constructed them. It's not just an accumulation of soil. It's not a tumulus. That's not what we're talking about. Here we are talking about A very important from the point of view of engineering and the collection of uh, specialized soils for the building of the mound. In the end, it became one with the environment and that's why it's called Laona because in in the dialect, Laona, Laoni, is a natural area, a hillock, where you go for hunting. So nobody had ever suspected this mound to be artificial. Why we, why we thought of it, thank God, we worked with our geologist and it didn't look very natural to us. So in the course of our survey, I asked our, engineer, our geologist and said, can you please give me your idea? And they laughed at me. They said, don't you see that it's artificial? <laughs> I, said, I said, well, nobody has ever tried to say that before. And it was very difficult to start investigating it because there are no easy methods to approach a mound, especially when you have no idea what it hides. It's extremely hard to, to excavate because it's made mostly of marl. Marl is harder than cement, and despite the fact that it's a paleo soil. So these guys had extracted tons Thirteen thousand cubic meters minimum of marl extracted from under the natural bedrock of the area, transported and placed into different layers, exchanged with red soils, uh, pressed down until it was made like to look like a, a natural hillock. What is even more amazing is that we started exploring this difficult monument in. 2012 and by well two years later we realized that it had been constructed on top of an earlier Rambar, the fortification system. So here we are now with um, a cita- a citadel on the opposite terrace of Haji Abdullah where we have an incompletely excavated palace left and abandoned by the British team in the 1950s a huge new monument which is recognized as the formal workshop complex of the palace, a mount that is still hiding its burial secret, and an, a, a very important 5th century classical um, defensive system, a rampart, hidden under the mount, and thus preserved to a maximum height of 8 meters. And can you do you imagine having power that stands up to 8 meters which was constructed back in the 5th century BC.
0: You call this on Cypriot this this yes, uh, yes,
1: yes. the amount could not have be. we have published this very important article with um, a, war, a, a a very famous renowned uh, geologist uh, Panayotis Karkanas and also um, his protege, Myrsini Guma, uh, on, on the construction of the mound. When I asked him to visit us years ago and, and give me his opinion, he's the he's the director of the Wiener Lab of the American School of Classical Studies in Athens. Uh, it, it, he took he took a look at the mound and then the sections I had cut for him to to study, and he turned to me and said, "Do you mean to say that there's no?" ancient literary sources talking about this monster of a monument. He was terribly impressed and asked me then and there to include it in his new book with uh, an American colleague. So Laona made its first debut in the world of uh, mounds in this famous book on tumuli throughout the world. But for us now, it is still a major project because having analyzed it micromorphologically and having received the, the interpretation of how it was constructed by these great colleagues, um, it is absolutely clear that there was no such know-how in Cyprus. Uh, these were expert engineers that had made Tumuli elsewhere. So what does it this mean? That we have to think in terms of a period in time when such specialists could have arrived in Cyprus. And based on the chronology of the of the mound, which seems to be a late fourth, early third century BC monument, it suits us to think in terms of Macedonian engineers coming into the island at the time when the Cypriot kings are helping Alexander the Great to win over the see the state of Tyre and move towards his campaign to, to, against Persia.
0: Wow, that's, so, that's incredible.
1: Now, Paphos doesn't just have a sanctuary. It has a true um, urban area that uh, needs to be studied and excavated for many, many decades to come. And not only by me. <laughs>
0: So I'd like to finish with um, one final question. And in a well, in a two thousand and two article, you, you actually stated, uh, "Let the spade decide the chronology of the foundation as well as the status of these early polities." With everything that we've discussed in twenty years, and this is a this is a this is an open question. It's a big question to to wrap up with. Uh, what has changed?
1: Oh, a lot. Most of all, I think we have we have. We have reached certain agreements. At least, the majority of scholars working in Cyprus have come to to adopt the idea of cyprocentrism meaning let's concentrate on the regional developments within the island before we start running in the continents to find answers. So, the projects that are going on now in Kythion, in Amathus, in Idalion, in Paphos, in Marion, also have given us strong uh, data to identify these different polities and to see how how many of them have a long past, meaning already in the Bronze Age, or not. Of all these polities, only one was truly new in the Iron Age. Only one. Amathusus. Only Amathus has no Bronze Age past, has no bra- Bronze Age stradas before the Early Iron Age. All the others, Encomysalamus, Kidion Halasultanteche, Baphos, Palepaphos, <laughs> Idalion also, all of them have a lot to tell us since the Late Bronze Age, at least since the Late Bronze Age. Some Some even go further back into the Early and Middle Cypriot. So, The spade is giving us the diachronic history of these ancient polities, and we should not decide just on our own that we don't care about Paphos before its Iron Age kingdoms, before its Greek-named kingdoms. We don't care about Gideon before its Phoenician kings. This is not scholarly. This is not trying to write the history of a polity and of an island. So, yes, the spade has changed
0: everything. Maria, thank you so much for your expertise. It was incredibly enlightening uh, talking with you. Just,
1: I hope it was not too complicated.
0: Not at all. And I understand the importance of just, the, just that word right at the end. I, I think was mind-blowing. Cyprocentricity.
1: I have I have received many attacks, but I, I strongly believe, and I see this from the reaction of my colleagues and my students, that it was needed. Now everybody is saying we there is so much we, we we can do with with this regional island approach.
0: It's 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 incredible the work that you've done. Yes,
1: you should be congratulated. I accept it because you are so far away in Canada and yet you're trying to develop you know the history of Cyprus.
0: Thank you thank you so much.
1: take care Andreas take in care a- bye bye.